day, everybody. Here we are today with Dr. Kate Tudor from Northumbria University in the United Kingdom. How are you going, Kate? Thanks for joining us on our podcast. Really good. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. No worries at all. Well, it's a pretty exciting uh, field that you're working in. A bit of technology, a bit of crime prevention, a bit of a range of things. I wonder whether you could just talk a little bit about uh, your background in this space, uh, what, what you, uh, uh, how you got into looking at... Uh, specific issues around real crime? Yeah, no problem. Um, so I've been looking at rural crime and predominantly looking at the theft of plant and agricultural machinery and vehicles. Um, so I've carried out a few projects in this area really. So the first one um, was looking at plant and ag thefts in the UK, um, really because it wasn't looked at in much detail over here. There hadn't been many studies looking at um, sort of who was involved in it and the kind of dynamics. Um, the offender perspectives. Um, there had been some uh, work done around kind of victim experiences and the impact of that kind of crime, um, but it is a kind of underdeveloped area of criminology over here. So um, I had a look at that um, particular problem from multiple perspectives in the first um, in the first study, looking at kind of victim experiences, looking at offenders um, and their experiences, their motivations, the business models, but then also looking at the kind of policing of this kind of crime as well. So looking at the issues around um, what's preventing us from actually responding to it effectively, how the police actually experience um, policing this kind of crime and looking at the kind of structures around how we police it um, in the UK. Um, but pretty pretty soon the kind of commercial, the importance of the commercial dynamics became really clear. So I kind of extended the remit looking um, at um, the manufacturers, the insurance of these kind of vehicles and looked at the kind of um, commercial dynamics that also kind of drive this kind of criminality. So I was really just kind of trying to get a, a clearer picture of what's going on with this kind of crime, how much of it's going on, who's involved, um, and the kind of uh, problems around meeting the needs of victims and how we might kind of begin to address this more effectively. So it was kind of very general, wide, um, wide perspectives that I took. Um, I since moved on to looking at um, rural crime more generally, so beyond the scope of just machinery and vehicle thefts. So the second project I did in the rural crime area would uh, looked at the um, the relationship between rural criminality and organised crime. So looking at the kind of people that are involved in uh, rural criminality within the UK and trying to understand the extent um, of organised criminals and travelling criminals and trying to build up a picture of, of who's actually committing these crimes. So that second project um, was uh, much more heavily desk-based. It, it didn't involve um, interviewing offenders. It was looking at their criminal histories, looking at um, data from police sources, basically, to kind of map who's involved, um, what kind of crimin criminality they're involved in, looking at how they move between types of rural crime, but also types of rural crime and other forms of criminality. Yeah, I think one of the things that one of the things that really strikes me is the it, it is a big business, isn't it? I remember coming yeah. across to the UK myself and interviewing people back in it must have been two thousand and sixteen, and uh, one of the companies that I went and visited was um, DataTag, and they do yeah. uh, the the micro dots and the liquid property market, a whole range of stuff. But they said that it really came to the public fore and a lot more energy and effort was put into trying to do something about the theft of plant and equipment because it was in the lead up to the 2012 London Olympics and they knew that all this massive construction was going to be happening lots of vehicles and they knew that that was going to be a problem in delivering all of those projects on time if all the stuff kept on getting stolen 
Absolutely. And that kind of highlights that they can do something if they want to do something. Um, and it's quite selective, the response. So there are many things in place um, that we can employ in order to reduce this kind of crime quite significantly, but they're not always adopted. And I think that example is a wonderful way of highlighting that in the sense that they can pull out the big guns when they need to, when it's within their own commercial interests. But generally speaking, these things aren't always kind of employed routinely so that that was one of the major frustrations that came out of this definitely but you're absolutely right this is massive business um the people that are involved in this kind of crime aren't i mean you have some low level criminals but generally speaking um they are quite organized and serious criminals and this kind of crime forms part of a wider portfolio of criminality um and and they're quite diverse in the business interests and business activities. Yeah, so and I, I guess yeah, you know, I guess it's that that notion of the organised the organised nature of it too. So you know, just like traffickers can can shift pretty readily from animals to money to people to gold to stolen timber and whatnot. The people involved in this, it could be vehicles from urban settings, from cities, or it could be agricultural plant and equipment. But they've got all the yeah. supply lines. It's it is a massive business, isn't it? They Absolutely. can dispose of the assets reasonably quickly. Uh, they've got markets already. I know there was another example that I had here in Victoria, a wheat header that's worth half a million Australian dollars. And it got stolen from one place in the western side of Victoria. And it was in Mount Isa, which is up in central Queensland two days later. Obviously, there was yeah. a buyer and it's targeted. It's not like some of the stuff that Kyle's been looking at in New South Wales, you know, the theft of 20 sheep from a farm or um, some of that small... Uh, small scale stuff. This is big business. Yeah. It is absolutely. And what I found was that some of it is. Um stolen for the UK market and it doesn't actually leave our shores so it's sold on sort of like online platforms eBay Facebook all of that kind of stuff but as you say a lot of it does actually serve an international market as well and the infrastructural arrangements that these people have in place are quite mind-boggling um, sometimes they are stealing to order so they will come to the UK um, simply to commit crime um, they're not based here they don't necessarily have um, established links with the criminal community they're just coming here to commit crime um, steal the items and then ship them back abroad straight away and they have all of these um, transportation routes and handlers all set up and they're routinely moving um, goods stolen from the UK across um, Europe and into Eastern Europe predominantly so yeah they're really well set up. Yeah, one police officer told me that the really modern equipment will be stolen and will go to Eastern Europe. And then the really old stuff like 1950s, 1960s, Massey Ferguson tractors goes to the, the north of Africa because they can be repaired with a hammer <laughs> rather than needing a, a computer science degree or engineering degree to fix the yeah. really modern equipment. So all these supply lines. Um, oh, and the other, I, I remember the other fascinating thing was they said the, the criminals know that all the attention at Dover is on what's coming into the United Kingdom rather than what's going out. So they wait until 30 minutes before the ferry sails, take the trucks on, on loaded full of stolen stuff and nobody's paying any attention. They're all wanting to see what's coming in. So the criminal justice system and all the processes are set up to almost facilitate the offending too, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the policing of ports is a massive issue um, in the sense that we have so much cargo going out of the country that we simply can't check it all. We know that. Mm. But the extent to which we do check things going out is really quite limited. Um, we don't have the resources in place. We don't necessarily have police forces in place in all of the ports. 
Um, we do sort of small um, operations where we'll like maybe spend a week there and, and look through a few um, shipping containers, but it's really not any more sophisticated than that. And you're absolutely right, the criminals do know this. And sometimes their way of secreting items is as basic as putting some cord bikes in and throwing some mattresses and bikes and junk on and people open the, car, the, uh, the shipping containers and they just haven't got the heart to, to rake through it. Mm. So it's, it's really basic stuff. It's not necessarily high tech responses. <laughs> Is it a matter of focus as well? Like, is it just attentions on drugs and humans and that kind of sort of trafficking and this sort of farm machinery just flies under the radar because it's not the focus of authorities? Absolutely. And that's a huge problem. I'm looking at plant and ag theft because it doesn't meet the threshold of harm for uh, police mm. attention in many fields. And it's not just when we're looking at the uh, transportation of uh, goods out of the country. It's also whilst looking at the actual policing of it domestically. And we have that huge problem that um, local forces sometimes um, aren't big enough or well set up enough to actually deal with the scale of some of these crimes. But it doesn't meet the threshold um, for the ROCUs to intervene. So we have regional organised crime units in the UK. And they're focusing on exactly the things that you've just talked about there, Kyle, in sense of um, trafficking and um, child exploitation and all of that kind of high harm stuff, drugs. And so this doesn't meet the threshold. So it falls in the cracks between these two levels and consequently just isn't looked at in enough detail at all. And so these criminals do have kind of free reign to operate in this sphere. And it's incredibly lucrative as well. But the problem with that is that I, I alluded to the fact that um, a lot of these criminals are organised in nature and they have links to other kinds of crime. So sometimes the people that are involved in this kind of offending are also simultaneously involved in um, those high harm activities. So um, things like exploitation, um, drug supply, um, serious and organised acquisitive crime. So they have links and sometimes it's the same people that are involved in these kinds of crime that are also involved in the plant and ag world. But it's just that this area of criminality doesn't receive as much police attention and they know that and therefore they know that they can um, ensure kind of steady streams of revenue into their criminal portfolios through this route without actually attracting too much attention. So it is mm -hmm. a huge problem. But going back to the ports problem as well, Part of the issue is also, again, commercial, because if you start to search through all of these um, these shipping containers, then you're slowing down yeah, the flow traffic. of cargo in yeah. ports, and people don't have the appetite for that either. So to actually intervene in criminality within that particular sphere is also to kind of shut down um, commercial flows, and that's hugely problematic and politically um, unpalatable as well. Yeah. Speaking about commercial flows, uh, obviously one thing that, that we focus on in rural criminology is the way in which um, cultural geography, but as well as just the kind of locational context in which these crimes occur, very much shapes how and why they occur. Um, so we see that in stock theft, for instance, in Australia, particularly just because of the sheer magnitude and size of Australia is kind of unfathomable for most people that live in Europe. So is that at play here as well, particularly, um, I know the UK is quite distinct from Europe and, and has uh, the, the water separating it there, but in terms of those channels of trafficking through to, you talked about Eastern Europe and elsewhere, is there any information around that, how these sorts of flows uh, occur within that context? I don't know, that's a really interesting question. And actually, strangely enough, that is the basis of my next research project. So yeah. looking at the of these links and, and how they actually come to bear but I would say 
looking at the data, and I'm thinking particularly in relation to the data here of um, groups that are involved in the theft of GPS systems, when we looked at where these particular groups are operating, we saw them um, going on huge theft sprees across the Netherlands. They targeted France unrelentingly, and then they almost stopped altogether in France, and then they came to the UK. So I think what we're talking about here are itinerant groups that are really well set up to travel to various locations and employ this particular form of criminality within different locales. Um, <clears throat> why they move at the point at which they do, I'm not sure, because I know that in relation to France, they did have um, quite a harsh policing response in relation to GPS thefts, and they began to police it much more intensively. And we saw the movement of that group out, out of France and towards the UK. So whether or not they're identifying places where um, that are basically soft targets or where it becomes um, too difficult, where the, the balance of, um, <clears throat> of the effort required and, and the risk mm. involved in that kind of crime begins to change and they move on. But certainly, um, <sighs> I don't think the UK is unique in the sense that we attract foreign national offenders within rural criminality. And mm. certainly that some of the nominals that I looked at were also um, very active in other parts of Europe. So I don't know, I can't really give you a definitive answer, but that's kind of what I would say in the sense that it's not entirely unique to the UK. Yeah, I'd be really keen to follow that third project. I just remember, you know, when I first came to Europe doing my PhD and it was with the European Union, so we're all over. Uh, between the UK was in the European Union at that time, um, between the UK and, and Germany and elsewhere. I just remember driving particularly across Europe and, you know, entering Hungary or entering Spain and just there being no sort of border. Whereas even as a Canadian, you know, I used to wait in these long lines just to get into the United States and, and vice versa. So I remember that just being a bit mind boggling. And then as a criminologist thinking, oh, wow, it'd be pretty easy to traffic people, goods, animals, you know, any any which way I wanted here. Um, a colleague, uh, Katinka Vondervan as well did research on steroid trafficking and exploring how um, different uh, police enforcement levels and mechanisms were hampered by this as well. So in Belgium, you had this really hardcore crackdown on steroid, particularly labs, underground labs, and all these types of things. Whereas in the Netherlands, of course, you didn't. Uh, and what was happening was everything was being produced in the Netherlands and just brought over to the Belgian market where prices were higher and everything. So I was just thinking about those dynamics in relation to this type of agricultural equipment, uh, whether it came to demand from certain countries, looser regulation, lack of attention by authorities in certain areas where it's easier to steal and then transport where the demand is. But yeah, it'd be very interesting to see that that third study if you can actually unpack any of this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, at a much lower level, I did kind of tap into some of those elements. So when I spoke to the offenders themselves, they are kind of acutely aware of where weaknesses and vulnerabilities lie. And they're, they're very systematic in the way that they seek to exploit those. So that might be um, on a national level between different police forces, or it could be at an international level as well. So. Um, they note that if they're offending off their own um, patch, so if they're travelling to different police force areas, they're not necessarily flagged up as sort of known nominals. And of course, they ought to be because we have national um, police systems such as the PND, PNC, that should account for that. So that um, if there is intelligence against a particular nominal, then police forces nationally will be aware of that. But there are issues around police forces um, uploading information in a timely manner, accessing it when they ought to. Sometimes they're very reliant on um, 
the use of their own local force systems and don't necessarily um, use PND in the way that they should. Um, there's also issues around access to PND in the sense that not everybody's trained in it and not, not all officers have access to it. So it causes huge issues. And this causes a, a, the, the development of sort of huge intelligence gaps and they know this and they exploit this and so um what i found was even within the uk they're traveling like really quite significant distances not by australian standards obviously but um they're traveling significant distances to actually commit crime um so it's probably small meat to you guys but um one particular group that i was um looking at um who was stealing quad bikes predominantly they were based in um the north of England and they were traveling up to kind of the north of Scotland so a good few hundred miles in the course of an evening to kind of targeting systematically farms that they'd scoped out in advance to actually steal quad bikes that they'd identified the presence of in advance as well. So they're not only um, exploiting weaknesses in policing, they're also traveling significant distances, uh, moving between police forces, um, not just because it allows them access to a greater um, sort of amount of machines, but also because it means that they're less likely to be detected and they, and they know that the intelligence isn't necessarily being shared. But one really interesting case that came up in the research was that, um, so um, in the UK, it's not exclusively um, a, a traveller-based crime, but what we see is within um, plant and ag thefts, um, Gypsy Rover, Roma traveller communities are kind of overrepresented as um, offenders. And so I, I managed to speak to a couple of people drawn from that um, community in the first project. And what was really interesting was that um, the two communities, two GRT communities drawn from different police forces were actually working in unison together. So one of them was actually scoping out machinery on behalf of the other. And then they would pass on that information and they could travel to each other's police forces to actually target that machinery. And the reason for that was that they didn't want to be seen scoping out in advance and then going back uh, subsequently to actually steal the machinery. So they were able to kind of um, circumvent um, surveillance in that first instance, because they're always really, really worried about CCTV and being picked up in the particular um, area in advance of the, the crime. And that kind of allowed them to overcome that issue. So they had this kind of like reciprocal relationship between these two groups that allowed them to offend on each other's patch without actually being um, present in that uh, police force area prior to the, the crime. So there are loads of different kinds of organizations sitting behind this kind of crime, but it's really interesting the way that the um, that groups are set up within the UK to actually help each other out as well. So from a, a policing perspective, what, what would you say would be, say, the top three things that would need to change in order to tackle this? So perhaps I'd go, oh, I'm thinking ahead here, maybe one of them is a greater cooperation between forces. And so there's some examples of that. So, well, yeah, there are, there are a few things. So definitely the, the presence of 43 different forces stands as a massive impediment to effective policing. It's, it's insane how it actually impacts on, on policing. Um, we do have systems in place to try and overcome that, as I said, with sort of national uh, computer systems, PND, PNC, but these need to be used much more effectively. And what we need is an, um, a much more effective intelligence sharing system. So what I've suggested in a, a recent report that I've written um, is that we need local 
systems of intelligence sharing which exist in isolation in some areas of the UK. So we've got some really good examples of neighbouring forces grouping together and having um, an intelligence sharing system for those forces and thinking like sort of four or five forces at, at most. And so that has been really, really effective for flagging up active nominals, vehicles, all of that kind of thing. And they're routinely sending out sort of weekly emails with active nominals, um, issues, emerging MOs, that kind of thing. And that's really effective just to kind of keep everybody in the loop to be looking out for particular particular things. But as and when something um, happens, there's an, a sort of an emergency um, instant alert to all of these forces to make everybody aware. And then there's also like a monthly meeting in place for people to share intelligence. So that system I can think of two or three examples in the UK where that works incredibly well. But of course, if the criminality takes place and a bordering force outside of those four or five forces, then that's when it kind of all falls apart. And when we think about the geographical spread of the criminality of these offenders, then that becomes really problematic because, of course, they are traversing geographical areas that would transcend those kind of boundaries. So I think that those systems need to be set up much more uh, routinely across the UK. So you have these kind of close-knit um, groups of forces, but then they need to be supplemented with a much wider kind of national approach as well. So um, involving intelligence sharing, involving um, emerging MOs, all of that kind of thing, um, nominals uh, that are particularly active. And I think that's really important when we're thinking about rural crime more generally and not just plant and ag theft, because if we start to, to follow crime theories, so if we're looking for a spree of particular um, machinery and vehicle thefts, then yes, we're going to pick something up. But actually what we know is those nominals are also involved in a range of other kinds of crime. So if we're starting to look um, to focus our attention on vehicles and nominals, then we can much more effectively pick up the range and extent of the criminality that they're involved in and get a much sort of clearer picture of their uh, crime sprees because it will go beyond that particular crime type. So I think intelligence sharing is one of the major things. I think, sadly, and it's very predictable, um, investment is a huge issue. Um, in the sense that rural crime, rural policing are significantly underfunded. Um, and not all police forces do actually have rural police um, teams. Are you still there? Yeah, just just pause for a sec because you've just frozen up once or twice there. Your, your voice is fine. It's your just the video fine. has frozen up, so you can keep going. You're back now. Yeah, okay. It goes up on, um, we'll edit this bit out, it goes on Spotify and Apple as audio as well as up on YouTube. So, <laughs> so it doesn't, it doesn't did, matter. Did we freeze for you or...? Uh, yes, yeah. Yeah, so just the video froze, but the voice was fine. Um, building off that now, because your train of thought's probably been derailed, is you did mention, is there a role for private enterprise in this? Uh, the manufacturers themselves in any way? Um, are they responsible um, for doing a better job at uh, preventing these goods from being stolen uh, with such ease? Absolutely. So um, the solution to this problem is multifaceted. So it incorporates a huge range of uh, behavioural change at multiple levels. So that would involve victims, police forces, um, 
obviously defenders, but we're not really going to achieve that element of it. But then absolutely, you're right, the, the manufacturers as well and the insurers need to play a part in this as well. So in relation to the manufacturers, this is um, something that we're focusing on really heavily at the moment because um, there are some really simple solutions to be had here. Um, in the sense that some of this uh, machinery that's being stolen, the security on it is um, archaic, to say the least. Yeah. So we see huge disparities in the, um, the quality of the security present on agricultural machinery and vehicles. So some areas of the market, so some vehicle types have quite um, adequate security, uh, some don't. And then when you drill down a little further, some makes and models have better security than others as well. So we have some good practice within the market, but then also others that kind of conspicuously lag behind in terms of what they're doing to actually prevent theft. Now, it's not um, complicated, the, the kind of things that we would seek to um, see and reduce here. So I'm sure you're all aware of the fact that in some cases you, you have universal keys. Yes, yeah. I was blown away when I first started looking into this and every every track every John Deere tractor is keyed alike and it's just mind-blowing, isn't it? You, know, you look at yeah. the sophistication of of car and driveway and um and then it's, it's brand new tractors and they're the same as everyone else so it's weird well, I think that yeah Sorry? it's and i i think it also brings in that element of seriousness like if you look at auto theft and the government's role there and kind of pushing manufacturers to do a better yeah. job to prevent this Absolutely. if you look now at uh, drink driving technology and the united states forcing manufacturers to come up with tech that can detect and disable um, in inebriated drivers. But it's like, you know, would that sort of governmental intervention ever come at this level because of the scale? And as you talked about, the perception of harm, which I think is, is also very wrong. It's the same way in stock theft, this perception that it's minimally harmful ignores so much qualitative uh, sort of aspects of harm. But that's another debate. But um, yeah, do you think that that's an impediment to this? Just again, the, just the it just flies under the radar and they almost might just prefer it that way. Yeah, well, it's insane. It's absolutely. So we've got the issue of kind of universal keys, which is so ridiculous, it's hard to discuss. Um, thankfully, they have been phased out in many areas of the market. But what we do see is the kind of uh, presence of like a small range of keys. So you might not have a universal key, but there might be, say, like six kinds of keys for a particular like kind of quad bike or whatever it is and that again is massively problematic so what we have seen is the introduction of um, chipped keys in particular I'm thinking like Can-Am quads so it's very easily done the other issue is um, and you just brought this to mind with what you said about government intervention there Kyle so immobilization technology um, in many areas of the the ag market that hasn't been introduced I'm thinking specifically in relation to quads here really um, so this technology is present in um, the domestic car market, domestic vehicle market. It's present in certain areas of the ag market, but not in all. And in those areas in which it's not present, um, the companies that haven't introduced it have introduced it to other areas of their, um, their, their market. So for those that um, produce um, motorbikes, it is present within the motorbikes, but it's not present within the quad bikes, and it's hugely problematic. And when I spoke to the offenders about this, they know this. So I talked earlier about the fact that they're really adept at 
identifying weaknesses in policing and exploiting those weaknesses. They do exactly the same with the, the um, actual vehicle security as well. So they know which ones are easier to start with a screwdriver. They know which ones um, are most easily carried away. And so when it comes to immobilization, this is something that they're also acutely aware of. That drives the decision-making in conjunction with other factors, such as this kind of saleability and desirability of, of vehicles that they can move on. But you're absolutely right um, when you talk about government intervention, because if you think about the example of immobilization, we had a blanket um, piece of legislation that covered the entire EU um, in the 1990s that required and mandated the introduction of um, immobilization technology in cars. And so it's entirely possible for this kind of legislation to be introduced with the stroke of a pen, but there's just not the appetite for it. It may, may relate to, um, to issues around perceptions of risk or the kind of volume of the kind of crimes that are taking place. But I do also know that there's significant commercial resistance to this kind of legislation as well and the adoption of this kind of technology. Um, and the reason for that is that um, theft really is good for business um, because we find that farmers are really, really, um, they have great fidelity to particular brands. So if they had um, a particular type of quad bike stolen, they want that kind of quad bike again because it does a good job. It's what they're familiar with. It's, it's kind of what they, they've decided that is suitable for their own business. And so they will rebuy that kind of quad bike. And so if a quad bike is stolen, then the manufacturer um, it results in another sale for the manufacturer. So it actually drives business with, with um, the more thefts that take place. And so we did some cursory digging into um, theft rates. We looked at some of the uh, theft rates of quad bikes um, in the UK, just looking at some kind of insurance claims around that. And we realized that around about 10% of sales, and we're talking roughly speaking here, around about 10% of quad bike sales were actually driven by um, bikes that have been stolen. So it's not insignificant. I don't know what the figures around that would be, the kind of value of that. But we have to think about the kind of commercial impediments to making these changes as well, because they are significant. Yeah. And I think that, that, sounds, could... that sounds amazing, 10% of sale through, yeah. through theft. I never even thought of that. Thinking about a bit more of a benevolent approach for these companies, do you think it has anything to do with driving up costs as well? Because if you think about emission standards that have changed dramatically, uh, safety standards, especially here in Australia, it's something else, um, the introduction of different safety mechanisms on these. And then you have crime prevention mechanisms. And if you add all that, it would very much, I think, drive up the cost of these products. Is there any consideration to that at all? Like they just, they don't want to add the immobilizer. They don't want to add that because they're going to add and cost to their user and not that it's benevolent but they know that they'll cut out a large section of their market that they want to retain perhaps well absolutely and and the manufacturers when i spoke to them they did talk about that quite a lot they talked about um kind of protecting consumer sovereignty allowing the 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 consumers to make that decision as to whether or not they wanted to to make the extra cost to uh, improve the security on the machinery but when I spoke to the, the victims and the members of the rural community, they didn't see it that way. 
they thought it was absolutely preposterous that they could have um, a car with a mobilization and decent security, but then they spent, you know, like several thousands of pounds on this particular agricultural machinery and it wasn't sufficiently protected. They have an appetite for change. They have an appetite for the introduction of this technology. They generally aren't interested in after sales um, security. They don't want to make additional um, purchases after the point of sale. They want it incorporated in the machinery. Um, and I'm not talking about anything kind of um, complicated at this stage. We're, we were just talking about kind of a mobilization, chipped keys, all of that kind of thing. They couldn't understand why this particular area of the vehicle market was so conspicuously different to others. And the from the limited number of people I spoke to, so I was in the end about 100 and, so 130, probably around about 150 of members of the rural community and, and victims, they all kind of almost universally said that that's, that's something that they wanted and that they would support. So from the manufacturer's perspective, absolutely, they're talking about this idea of consumer sovereignty. But from the victim's perspective, they definitely want improved security that's interesting and they'd be willing to pay for that improved security yeah and and they said that and i don't think the cost implications are significant um mm. when you look at the, the actual cost of uh introducing immobilization it's not huge no, no and i think when when I, I think when i was over there and talking to people on a couple of occasions um the national farmers insurance division actually provide some sort of premium discounts if people actually can demonstrate that they've applied certain crime prevention measures so whether it's been marked with smart water or it's got a, it's part of the caesar caesar it scheme or any of those other things and they get a what was it, i think it was 12 and a half percent discount on the insurance premium so the payoff payback period might be a couple of years but you can also imagine that at the individual level once the once the offenders have taken the one quad bike you just have to wait one month for the insurance check to arrive. You know that they're going to go down to the Polaris dealer and get a new quad bike, and you know there's going to be a brand new one with hardly any kilometres on it waiting in the same shed, you know. So I guess this is a nice segue into we've talked about uh, the manufacturers, we've talked about policing and law enforcement. What are some of the um, things that individual uh, farmers or individual victims can do to protect themselves from a crime prevention perspective with particularly thinking about sort of you know, machinery and plant and equipment. Yeah. So there was an issue um, that came up in the research around the problem of farmers leaving keys in machinery. I don't know if this is an issue in Australia as well yes. yet. So um, in the first phase of the first project, I went around farms um, in the local vicinity and um, interviewed a lot of farmers locally as well. And when I went around and people weren't there, I would sometimes just leave my... Uh, my contact card on a machine on the key <laughs> you would see it routinely all the time it was really really common um, and this was an issue that came up around the commercial dynamics of theft as well so um, in the UK you talked about the, the fact that there are reductions in premiums for insurance if you take um, steps towards protecting your property and there absolutely are a lot of the, the victims and the farmers felt that those um, premium reductions weren't quite sufficient to um, motivate them to take particular steps because of the costs involved in those particular um, measures. But um, we also have an issue that if um, one of the major one of the major rural um, insurers still often pay out when keys are left in machinery overnight, 
And so this kind of didn't um, incentivize farmers to take sufficient steps towards actually protecting their own machinery. So that would be the most basic step. Um, so taking um, keys out of machinery. Um, victims often talked about the fact that when they were in like really busy periods, so harvest periods and things, they were so tired, so busy that they knew the kind of security procedures became a little bit more lax and they left themselves open to victimization a bit more. So that involved sort of like leaving keys in, leaving machinery next to hedges where they were visible from roads, not taking off um, dome systems and, and leaving themselves vulnerable, not putting things in, in barns. So all of that kind of basic um, hiding things from view, all of that kind of stuff really needs to take place. But beyond that, so the offenders talked about the fact that they um, really didn't like um, properties with sort of huge floodlights and, and sort of motion reactive floodlights. And that was something that really put them off. Um, so anything like that, any kind of, um, you know, like the presence of geese and dogs and all of that kind of thing to present um, to kind of alert people to the presence of thieves, they really didn't like that as well. So that was found to be quite effective. Um, in relation to CCTV, um, when I spoke to the offenders about that, they weren't really all that bothered about the presence of CCTV um, at the actual property because they were so adept at actually um, disguising themselves, um, disguising vehicles, covering uh, number plates, using a false number plates, cloned plates, all of that kind of thing. So they did have measures in place that would stop them from being identified. So the presence of CCTV on the property itself wasn't problematic. Something that really did um, bother them was the um, the presence of ANPR cameras. And that's something, so following the routes to and from um, offences, so that was something that really bothered them. And so um, when I spoke to um, rural community groups who were involved in like rural watch schemes and things, a lot of them had actually been using the funds that they had in place to set up ANPR systems within their sort of locales. So setting it up on the entry and exit points for their, um, their local you know, village or whatever it, whatever it was, the kind of area that they covered. And that is really effective. Uh, that's something that's really definitely worth thinking if sort of local groups are able to access funds. That would be one of the, the main things. Um, beyond that... Um, Probably basic property marking as well. So the Caesar scheme, that strikes me as... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you able to explain a little bit about the Caesar, Caesar scheme for people listening and watching? Absolutely. So um, all of the things that we've kind of talked about about prevention of theft, but there's also issues around like the recovery of property and marking. And this is really, really important. Um, so in the UK, the, we have a Caesar scheme that's actually endorsed by the Home Office. So this would be the primary kind of marking scheme. So it, it, it operates at two levels. So you have um, for plant and ag machinery, kind of larger scale machinery. It's a, it's a marking system that has a kind of really distinctive triangular plate that would have a unique number and you can't remove that without leaving marks on the vehicles. Um, and then you also have a microdot system. So they're these tiny little um, um, identifying tags that are placed throughout the vehicle in, in numerous locations that can be picked up and detected. So if um, a lot of the, the machinery within the UK is actually, this comes as standard, so all, all tractors um, come with this um, pre-installed at the point of sale, but the problem is, is that we've seen regression um, 
with manufacturers manufacturers so some manufacturers we've actually seen withdraw from the system within recent years and so when we're talking about the commercial dynamics of uh, the introduction of um, security measures that we talked about before um, we also have the problem around marking as well and, and registration so it's not a kind of linear progressive development towards better marking standards we are seeing some regression within the market as well so absolutely marking would be really important and um, what's really interesting is that you have those kind of formal um, marking registration systems but what we've seen the de development of in the UK as well recently is this really um, interesting app that's just um, it's about to be introduced it's just being trialed uh, by the police force so that you can register your machinery and take photos of it but instead of using kind of formal marking um procedures which you can log as well against a piece of machinery you can also um take pictures of unique um features of your machinery so if you had like a pink sticker on your quad you could take a photo of that or if you had a scratch or whatever it is so once your piece of machinery has been stolen you can um register it as being stolen and then you can do a search according to these unique um markers and features on your machinery and that will allow it to be um identified much more readily on sort of on online sales platforms after the event just to kind of prove that it's your machines your machine sorry so it, it, you have these formal systems but then because we've realized in in quite a few cases over here that um quads have been identified because of kids stickers or whatever it is and so this kind of facilitates the more informal identification process as well and i thought that was really interesting mm. Do you know the name of that app? No, I don't. I'm not entirely sure if it's been given a name yet because it's just kind of um, in, in progress at the moment, but I think it's going to be introduced pretty soon. Um, is there, is it, the police have produced it themselves yes. for this very purpose. Yeah, wow. Yeah. yeah, there's some really promising things um, coming to the fore. Um, so another thing that the police are working on at the moment is... Um, um, we have an issue, you're talking about registration systems for, for vehicles, but um, sometimes police officers aren't necessarily very well trained in, um, in the use of systems that would facilitate the identification of plant and ag machinery, because it's quite niche in the kind of wider world of policing. Yeah. And so they wouldn't necessarily know which databases to search. And so what the police are working on at the moment is a kind of, um, it's, it's described as a kind of... Um, we buy any car or car supermarket kind of interface so that it's you type in the details of whatever you're looking for and that could literally be plant and ag machinery it could be bicycles it could be watches it could be anything anything that is registered on a database and it searches all of those databases in one so you're not having to search um, multiple types of database that would possibly hold this particular piece of machinery it just searches them all in one and so this is going to be a real game changer at the, at the point of stopping vehicles and just making checks as well so we are moving towards more streamlined systems um but i think some of these systems are going to be kind of monumental in the way that they overcome some of the issues around um, police training and police knowledge because that's something that really came up in the research as well in the sense that this is kind of a niche area of policing and you do have specific rural crime teams that will be uh, well versed in all of these issues but often because of the nature of these kind of offenses you're involving kind of like road policing teams neighborhood policing teams and they don't necessarily have that specialized knowledge and so some of these things will help kind of overcome some of these issues um yeah. but again it's all about um 
training and the facilitating of kind of national systems, not just of intelligence sharing, as I spoke about before, but also training and, and like knowledge transfer as well. Mm. Yeah, There's a, a lot of overlaps with the with stock theft here. I know with working with the police, it's the same gaps, the same holes. Um, it's a little different here, policing. I think New South Wales Police is one of the largest forces in the world. I come from a Canadian context, which is very much like the British context, where you have many small forces. Um, and I always wondered what's more difficult, because you believe in an organizer. I don't. I forget how many employed in the New South Wales Police, Alistair. 22,000. It's just wow. massive, like massive. And and it sounds good, but I think in organizations that are so big, sometimes you know the left hand doesn't talk to the right hand a lot of the times in the same way. And so a lot of these information systems that you've talked about, the, the rural crime prevention team in New South Wales is kind of pretty much ahead of that curve, but they've tried to implement these systems on their own in terms of reporting rural crime, in terms of touching base with other state forces in Queensland and elsewhere, uh, sharing information because they know that stock is you know, stolen in the Northern Territories or elsewhere and makes its way down to Queensland overnight or well, two days probably in that regard. But um, yeah, so it's just interesting, these, these same similar gaps. Expertise is another one. It's that they've introduced Operation Stock Check, uh, I guess a year, a year and a half ago now, where they're having road police, you know, stop uh, trucks that are carrying stock and training them how to check for the correct paperwork. And that's obviously a really big uphill battle because they don't know what they're looking for or what they're asking for and what is the proper paperwork. And there's so many broken rules over transportation of stock alone in terms of what is legal what isn't legal depends on what state and what year at what time and so it all gets yeah. extremely complex um, and even made more so by by a lack of knowledge and expertise in this area so the overlaps yeah. are, are just so similar in a you know almost entirely different space in an entirely different country absolutely and in relation to plant and ag theft we have um a policing <laughs> unit uh, called NAVSIS, it's the National uh, Vehicle Crime Intelligence Service, and we have a dedicated um, DC who is um, a, a specific rural crime and plant and ag theft specialist, and so he um, is basically Superman in the sense that it's him responsible for the whole country yeah, uh, yeah. in this kind of transfer of knowledge and he's constantly um, traveling around the UK training people up in exactly what you've just spoken about there in relation to stock theft so looking at what might constitute suspicious circumstances what might make you think that something's amiss with a particular piece of machinery how you can go about checking it training them in the Caesar scheme how to use all of the kind of equipment around that but when I say that it's him carrying out that task, it shows you how limited that service is. And yet, every time I spoke to a rural crime officer, wherever they were in the country, they were always singing his praises. So he does an absolutely amazing job. Mm. Um, but his, um, his, his funding needs to be extended significantly and, and the number of personnel involved in that need to be extended too. But going back to the manufacturers and the insurance companies and all of that kind of thing, to give them their due, they do contribute um, funds to schemes mm. such as that. So his post is um, entirely funded by the NFU Mutual, who is the, the major um, rural insurer in this country. So yeah. um, they are... It's the same here with a lot of the efforts, so, yeah. But, but, right. it, but yeah. it makes good uh, financial economic... PR. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also the economic sense, because you want to be taking everybody's premium and not having to make any payouts. <laughs> so, you know, discouraging uh, 
the offending and the, the theft of items uh, is within the interests of the insurance company, presumably. 100%, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I'm busy writing that article for you guys as well, and it very much talks about this um, dynamic. So what they're doing is credible and it is valuable, but they will do anything except address the major issue that they are involved in, which drives criminality. So that would be for the insurance companies around addressing the payout conditions about leaving yeah, keys yeah. and machinery. And for the manufacturers, it would be about improving the security um, at the point of manufacture. Because well, we um, talk about geographical context, but there's also that like cultural element to this too. Like, I wonder if they won't take away that payout because there is a culture of leaving these keys in and that culture is there because it's obviously one of trust, but it's obviously one of, uh, you know, they're getting in and out of those tractors 20 times a day or more. They're going to yeah. lose the key if they don't leave it in there. It's like yeah. the whole gate thing. Why won't you shut your gate and lock it? Because I'm not about to get out of the ute and unlock it 25 times a day. I don't have time for that. You might have time for that sitting at your yeah. desk job, but I don't have time for that. And so I often wonder about that cultural element to all this too, that, uh, you know, we talk about it with Alistair, the she'll be right mentality in Australia, but also just the, you know, the general crime prevention conception that not everyone expects to be a victim. Um, a lot of farmers here just chalk it up as a part of doing business. You know, they, they know they're going to have losses. And so that's just part of it. So there's all these different dimensions at play that always seem to be pushing against uptaking yeah. easy crime prevention techniques. 100%. And I think all of those things are actually really valid. If we had to contend with the pressures of farming, I think we probably would also take, you know, end up doing these things too. And I think within the context of daytime, when you're hopping on and off machinery, then it is kind of understandable. But if we're thinking about um, mandating the removal of keys overnight, I think that's, a, that's another thing entirely. And that's something that the insurance companies could definitely, could definitely consider. Mm. Um, and then there's those issues around personal responsibility too. So not leaving equipment unattended uh, near the roadside, doing due yeah. diligence on on contract contractors who are coming upon the property, all those sorts of things, just to try to yeah. minimise the risk as much as possible. What's interesting yeah. though is if you look at Elaine Barclay's work um, and even the recent New South Wales farm crime study, they both asked in different ways. Uh, basically who the farmers thought was responsible for crime prevention and they see responsibility for the police but they also very much personally responsibilize which doesn't always jive with the uptake of crime prevention efforts um, and I know Elaine's work went a little bit deeper and looked at like basically farmers blaming other farmers for those losses like it's their own fault do you know what I mean they're not taking care and so they should wear it sort of thing um, yeah that very yeah, much gets that came through in the interviews that I conducted with farmers as well in in two respects I guess um in the sense that they were often talking about other farmers and him up there he's responsible for our premiums going through the roof because he will never yeah. Eat yeah. It. he's had his quad bike stolen three times in however many years so there was a lot of that went on um but also in the sense that after they'd been victimized this kind of self-responsibilization for crime prevention became the source of like serious stress and yeah. they found they kind of like developed not neuroticism, but they were like really, really um, preoccupied with the need to kind of securitize their property, keeping the family safe, constantly yeah. being vigilant for um, trespassers. And so I think they did internalize that pressure after being victimized. And it was a source of real like stress and, and worry and anxiety for them as well. 
but you said before about this idea of um, the kind of internationalization of problems and the continuity of issues across like, you know huge geographical areas and I think that's something really important that we need to keep driving home as researchers as well because um, when we talked about the need um, to change security on machines with manufacturers they're really keen to suggest that it's just um, a UK problem mm, and so yeah so I started to collect data internationally, um, firstly in relation to quad theft and secondly in relation to GPS thefts, and it's certainly not. So when we looked at the um, kind of number of thefts per number of population for, um, for various countries, the UK actually came out second bottom in terms of quad thefts. You know, New Zealand was right at the top, we had America, and so yeah. it was... It's not a UK problem. It is a global problem. These things are being stolen everywhere. So manufacturers were using this kind of rationale of UK exceptionalism to justify the fact that they didn't need to include security at the point of manufacture because it would be kind of um, surplus to requirement in other jurisdictions. But actually, when I started to look into the figures, that wasn't true at all. And it is something that is required. Um, in multiple jurisdictions and more than um, it's required in the UK. And so this is something that we really need to push. Um, and it's something that obviously your own work can facilitate as well with the kind of joining up of researchers on, on a global scale. Because I think that because these are kind of multinational um, companies that are producing for a global market, then we need to show that these arguments and these issues are have continuity across borders and actually provide the rationale for change at the point of, you know, the kind of headquarters, the, the global headquarters. So that's something that I think really is lacking at the moment um, and something that we can, as researchers, do in a much more joined up way. Mm. I think if we can really good point. I think if we can sum sum up the uh, solutions to uh, this enormous problem. It's multi-pronged and there's no silver bullet. So it has to involve yeah. personal responsibility of farmers themselves, uh, yeah. the private sector, government, uh, law enforcement, and perhaps the one part that we haven't mentioned as well as um, the courts and sentencing outcomes as well, which I know is always a bugbear for, uh, uh, for farmers. farmers. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah. one of those uh, issues of pre presumably the world over too. Yeah, um, a lot of what we talked about, I imagine, has come out of the your report on illicit entrepreneurialism in the countryside. Yeah, so we'll we'll put a link for viewers, uh, listeners, and viewers, uh, so they can look at that. I have to say, it's one of the most beautiful reports I've ever seen, and um, you actually encouraged Alistair and I to basically copy your homework and use Adobe Spark, which I think has been renamed something different now. Oh, but it, it is an absolutely brilliant way to present research in a publicly accessible manner. And we saw that and actually went around, I think one of the police here in New South Wales sent me your report uh, the day on Twitter and then said, oh, look at this. And so it did its rounds here as well. And I thought, wow, that's really nice, well presented. And yeah, so we copied you. And I think my farm crime well, surveys in that format and it really was nice. I'd just like to take this opportunity to say that I can't take the credit for that. It's Dr. Yeah. James Hayden from Nottingham University. Okay, I copied yeah. somewhere. Someone so. else somewhere. Yeah, and <laughs> he copied someone else. Yeah, we're all like, we're else, all like so. magpies. We see something shiny and we have to put it yeah. on <laughs> No, it was very well done and very well presented. So we'll share that with everyone who's been interested in this conversation because you really go into to much greater depth there. I think the one thing I really appreciated and also tried to copy 
was that you had some tangible solutions and outcomes uh, if you were reading this as a farmer or if you were reading this as a law enforcement uh, officer, that there was some actual practical things that you were advising based on the data and information. I thought that was, uh, yeah, so, so valuable. And I think that's why the you know, police over here really noted that part as well. And that it gives them, they can actually learn something as opposed to, you know, I'm sure you will publish on this, but it, it's, they would learn very little from a paywalled uh, academic journal article, whereas this is so accessible and valuable. So it's a really great model um, to copy. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, no, I did try to keep it accessible and just to, to give something uh, like, as you say, practical, implementable advice, definitely. Um, and yes, you're absolutely right. I am publishing on this. I'm soon to submit a paper to yourself, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. Great. Excellent. All right. So shall we, uh, shall we wrap it up there? Yeah. Is there any sort of, um, that report is quite large. Is there anything major that we missed or that you'd want to highlight in closing on this issue? No, I, I guess not. I guess the, the only thing which I would perhaps suggest is worth highlighting. However, it is the most uh, commonly written about thing. Uh, when it comes to rural crime is this impact so you talked about the fact that there is the perception that it's kind of low harm crime and i would say that that's not the case at all and it's not the case because of the impact it has on the victims so in terms of the kind of um psychological financial impact but also sometimes yeah. physical impact because some of the people that i would spoken to had been attacked in the course of these thefts um so there is significant victim impact um in the uk and i'm sure it's the same where you are we yeah. have actually had um, deaths associated with these kind of thefts. So we've seen deaths of uh, victims, offenders and a police officer as well. So wow. um, these, yeah, these things can be quite extreme um, in terms of the, the physical impacts that they actually incur. But also, um, if we're thinking more broadly about um, impacts, the, the stuff that I mentioned earlier on, in the sense that these types of criminals are also heavily involved in very serious and more mm -hmm. impactful types of crime and the their involvement in this and their ability to generate revenue is actually shoring up other forms of criminality as well so it's a really I good think, point yeah yeah very, other they, other measurably uh, and more observed harmful activity that's funding yeah. these types of acts yeah yeah absolutely so i think we're being really short-sighted in the sense mm. that if we're just looking at crime types, then this will not fit under the um, the the attention of the ROCU, and it's also falling out of the attention of local police forces, local rural crime, and as I said before, it's slipping between the gaps, and that's because we're looking at the offence type. We're not necessarily looking at the nominals and the spread of their offences, and sometimes, as we well know, um, that if you want to target a nominal who is involved in significant drug supply, then sometimes the easiest way to get them is to go for the plant theft. Yeah, and or so tax evasion. Or... <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So if we start to look at the kind of broader portfolios of criminality that these people are actually involved in, then this might be a route into targeting serious and organised, often international itinerant criminals. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. One thing I just touch on as well is you raised the issue of psychological harm. And that's the thing that I think that blew me away the most looking at farm crime. Um, it was a survey, but of course I had to attach my number to said survey. And you wouldn't believe how many farmers just bring up for a 
you know, a two hour conversation just because they want to get it off their chest. I got so many of those calls, unfortunately, no ethical approval. So I couldn't use it in research. But what really struck me was talking to, you know, one farmer, but it came across on almost all the themes, but one farmer, uh, a female farmer talking about um, how uh, someone was creeping around their shed and the lights came on and, you know, she went up to the porch. It was like two, two thirty and three in the morning, you know, and they saw people out there and then they took off and that was it. That was the end of it. They, she checked the next morning. There was nothing really stolen, but for the next like three months, she'd wake up at two thirty in the morning and check because yeah. she was worried about the safety of the children. Um, I don't think her partner was often on the farm. And I think that's one thing we really take for granted. One thing that really came out is that in the surveys that farmers are really worried about crime. And we often think about crime happening and the importance of police clearing crimes, but the worry about crime is so psychologically impactful. And if yeah. you contextualize that in the geographic space that we're talking about, it's like, I could call the police right now and they'd be at my house in two minutes. You know, these people, particularly in Australia, can call the police and they're not going to be there for three and a half, four hours. It just they're just not within the vicinity. Um, um, and so that expectation of an immediate protective police response isn't there. So all these themes really came out and really boiled down to uh, psychological stress, concern, anxiety and worry that that can manifest in health issues and these types of things on top of droughts, bushfires, mouse plagues, floods, and everything else farmers in Australia <laughs> cope with. It's just, it seemed to be that cherry on top that, uh, and so when you brought that up about that, um, when people had been victimized, the layer of stress and almost neuroticism that you talked about that it brought out, it's very mm -hmm. similar in farm crime over here. It's just those overlaps. And, yeah. and for me, when people say farm crime isn't harmful it's the first thing that kind of comes to my mind is uh oh, it is quite harmful uh, actually if you, if, yeah. you, if you knuckle down absolutely and the people that i spoke to had exactly the same experience they were really fearful to be in their own houses kids were really adversely affected so it wasn't just mm. the kind of farmer themselves it was their family they didn't want to play outside they couldn't sleep yeah. they wanted to sleep in their parents bed and all of this kind of stuff and it's this kind of intrusion because it's often kind of conceptualized as business crime but this is where people live and so it's an intrusion into their own home as well um, and that really affects people um, I mentioned earlier on the kind of involvement of GRT communities in this kind of crime and what I found was that often um, I mean GRT communities are also traveling significant distances to commit the crimes as other types of criminals are as well um, but um, what came out was that often they were happy to offend in the local area and they were happy to offend in the local area because they were also simultaneously involved in kind of like significant levels of intimidation, um, mm. more pervasive kinds of intimidation as well. So systematic intimidation of members of the community. And so the psychological harm that went alongside that. So groups were involved in the theft of plant and ag machinery, and it was constantly being found on um, local sites. But the same nominals that were involved in that were also um, intimidating members of the community so they wouldn't actually speak to the police. And yeah. the kind of behaviours that were involved in that involved sort of like threats of violence, actual violence, mm. criminal damage. One person had the dog killed. And so yeah. there are also huge issues around kind of um, discrimination and racism against GRT communities yeah. in the UK. Yeah. And so when those stories came out, I kind of took them with a little bit of pinch of salt and then tried to speak to local police officers as well, just because you never know the kind of 
veracity of these accounts because often mm. they're driven by these kind of agendas. But the things that I've spoken about there were all corroborated by the local police forces as well. And so mm. it was acknowledged as an issue. Um, so you had those kind of one-off offences that really affected people and changed their behaviours and changed the way they thought and changed the sense of security. But then you also had those kind of ongoing, kind of more pervasive and insidious kind of um, ongoing kinds of intimidate, intimidation that yeah. people were subject to as well. So, mm. yeah, it, it is grim and it really does affect how people live. And as I say, it's not just the psychological harm as well. It's the financial harm in terms of their ability to actually carrying out the farming activities and um, the, the time that they're down for in terms mm. of not having a tractor yeah. or if you say if, if a GPS system stolen, the um, efficiency of the farming processes is completely knocked out. So it's all of these things that you don't necessarily think about or whether or not they've driven through your hedge and your fence and destroyed that and how much time you have to actually spend to fixing that. Mm. Um, so it's all these kinds of harm. Um, that are not necessarily um, quantifiable in terms of money or, or time or whatever it is, but are much more pervasive and change how people feel within the context of their own home that I really don't think are taken into account. Yes, you, you'll report the theft of the, the tractor because you need to put in the insurance claim, but you might not necessarily report the damage to the fence or the hedge or those other things. Mm -hmm. But yeah. the combination of all of those different stressors um, can, as you say, lead to mental health issues, yeah. self-harm yeah. violence against others mm. um so yeah it is very pervasive isn't it christopher smith at harper adams university has been doing a bit of work on on that of late but, as yeah. well you know the stresses that um are associated and the impacts on mental health that come from acquisitive crime yeah yeah but it also well, you refers you go ahead oh sorry i was just going to say you mentioned there about violence against others and that was a real significant finding. Um, so one example, um, they, they just became so angry that they became willing to hurt other people. So it actually meant that they were more likely to become embroiled in criminality themselves. Mm. And this isn't just sort of young farmers who would have a chance at overcoming these kind of um, offenders. I spoke to one man who was in his 70s that was so angry about how he'd had things stolen that he'd, he'd kind of said to his wife, if they come back, I'm going to take a bar to them or whatever it is. And she was begging him yeah. not to and, and all mm. of this kind of stuff. But one thing that did come up is that um, people were a little bit jaded and um, disillusioned with the police and feeding um, this kind of idea was this sense of vulnerability that you spoke about before, Kyle, in the sense yeah. that they're in local communities that they don't feel are being policed intensively. And so they started to take things into their own hands sometimes. So I spoke to a couple of people who had kind of set up informal um, patrol systems sometimes yeah. to kind of just keep an eye on the land and make sure that you know they were able to respond to people who were trespassing um sometimes it was um they had sort of informal um call networks so if, if somebody was found to be in a local area they would go out and in both of those examples they admitted to the fact that they had uh, engaged in acts of violence against trespassers yeah. Are we still there? Yeah, yeah, just the, the cameras are frozen again. again, but no, I can hear you perfectly. Oh, yeah. Right. Right. Uh, so, yeah, they were actually uh, becoming involved in acts of violence. And then yeah. the other thing is that people were um, starting to pay for um, private security services within rural contexts that had kind yeah. of started to proliferate. 
um, on the basis that people were feeling vulnerable, people were feeling disillusioned with the police. And so they were able to capitalise on these feelings of vulnerability and offer the services. Mm. Uh, sometimes that involved the kind of provision of um, crime prevention methods, crime prevention advice. It was all pretty above board. And the people who were providing these services were, you know, like a range of people who were involved yeah. in security, sometimes from ex, ex police officers. But there was a kind of murkier and shadier end of that provision as well. And mm. um, so, um, in those examples, people were patrolling the countryside with dogs, offering services, and and saying quite overtly in the interviews that I had with them that people um, wanted to pay for these services because they felt that they were taking things seriously and, and they were happy yeah. to give somebody a kicking if if they deserved it, quote unquote. Yeah. And, and this is something that people were supportive of because it meant that something was being done about the problem. So I think we've talked about all of these issues around um, having faith in the police, feelings of vulnerability, but actually these things have quite serious consequences in the sense that they can lead to an escalation of violence and instability and problems within the rural context as well, mm. as people are kind of pushed to take these measures or feel that they're pushed to take these measures. Yeah, it's amazing how many overlaps there are in rural crime and farm crime here in Australia. You know, it's a it very much speaks to you know, rurality and its its role in shaping not only crime, but responses to crime and then the social dynamics associated with that. So in farm crime, there's very low levels of confidence in the police to be able to do anything about it. Uh, there's a lot of disillusion, which contributes to underreporting and all these other issues. You spoke about intimidation. The third most common reason why farmers don't report crime is because they're afraid of reprisal. You know, because in a small, tight-knit community where you sometimes do have generational conflict and things like that, uh, as well as social density, you know, they'll know who told the police and it causes all these kind of, all these problems for them that they might otherwise not have. And so they'd rather, um, what's the saying that you found in your research, Alistair, kind of, we kill our own snakes in the bush? Was, was it that? You know, we'll just deal with it ourselves, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that it's amazing. It's overlapped. though. It speaks to the importance, I think, of, of rural criminology in a and a rural perspective on these issues and, and understanding locational context and cultural geography and shaping even organized crime at this level that you've spoken about today. All right, well, thank you so much, Kate. This has been a, a really insightful uh, um, discussion, uh, particularly around those circumstances of, of thefts of plant and equipment, but a whole range of other responses as well to this issue, both uh, from a United Kingdom context, but I think there's lessons to be learned for people uh, the world over. So thanks so much again for being involved in our, our podcast. It's available on YouTube, it's on Spotify, and it's on Apple as well. So thanks very much, and uh, we'll see you all on the next one.